What a blessing it is to be back with you. Uh, we came 7,000 miles back from Israel this week, and uh, it was a, a wonderful, wonderful journey for us, and we'll be sharing more about that, I know, as we open the Word. If you don't have the notes for this morning, they are in the bulletin and also on the church app, and you can find them there. We're in a series in the book of Nehemiah that I've called Building Back Boulder, and uh, we've been in this process of understanding the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the exile. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, and then uh, finally, some 50 years later, uh, the uh, powers, uh, Cyrus in Persia, began to release from Babylon uh, the exiled Jews, and they began to return. The first uh, was uh, Zerubbabel, and he came back to uh, try to rebuild the uh, temple itself. And then came Ezra because they realized, well, we're getting the structure of the temple, but we need the word. And we've lost the word along the way. And so we studied in Ezra about that. And we're in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is all about the walls and the gates. Uh, Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls and the gates uh, to bring security and hope. Uh, And so that's what we're, uh, the model that we're looking at. As we begin a new year or as we begin a new season in life, we need to think about the structures and about the walls and the protections and the gates, what we let in to our lives, what we let into our hearts. And this is this powerful image of rebuilding Jerusalem. Uh, News came to Nehemiah um, as he was in Susa, which was there in Babylon, part of Babylon. He was the cupbearer to the king, uh, so he had a pretty good job. But he got word from his brother that, uh, hey, things are bad. There's trouble in David's city, and it's, it's a mess uh, because there's no walls. The walls are broken down. The gates have all been burned. Uh, and so he makes a rather careful uh, request of the king, King Artaxerxes, and Queen Damaspia. Uh, and, and he receives favor from them. Uh, for provisions and permission to come and to uh, begin rebuilding. Last weekend, uh, I appreciate so much uh, Dr. Carey coming as our guest, and he brought us uh, the message from chapter 2 on casting God's vision, how we have to get a vision for what is going on here. And uh, and we saw how Nehemiah, he came directly to Judah. Uh, He had an armed escort, uh, compliments of the king, And we don't have any account of that journey. It's sort of amazing. I mean, we go to the next verse and he's there. Uh, We know it's a 900-mile journey. Uh, So as I calculated, it had to take at least four weeks if they were really booking it. uh, And probably more like uh, two or three months to make it uh, all the way back to Jerusalem. Uh, So he gets there and and he uh, comes back in and he finds that he really has his work cut out for him. And as far as we know, uh, we don't have any evidence that Nehemiah had ever done any construction. Uh, We don't know that he had even built an addition on a house or anything like that. Uh, But as cupbearer to the king, he would have been around when meetings took place, when presentations were made about building projects uh, there in Babylon. So he probably had learned a good deal about how you organize these sorts of things. And, and it occurred to me that you, you can learn a lot if you keep your eyes and ears open. Amen? And so sometimes we say, well, now, why am I in this situation? Well, just open your eyes and ears. Uh, 
Because God may have you there to learn some specific things that you don't know about yet that you're going to need in the near future. And that's a big lesson early on, is that God does not waste anything in your life. He won't waste, you know, any of the studies or any of the experiences uh, that you have had. So the arrival of Nehemiah attracted a lot of attention, and naturally it would. He comes into town with this military escort, and, uh, and they are aware he's the cupbearer to the king, so he's kind of an important guy. But what is going on? And that basically is the outline, the shape of the city at that time. We call it the city of David, Jerusalem, the city of David. And so it's quite different if you've ever seen pictures or ever studied modern times. The walls are very, very different uh, today. But that's the structure of what we were looking at at this time and what was so broken down in the location of the temple. So uh, immediately, there's, uh, there's some, a good deal of attention that comes, and, and it's from enemies. Uh, building back Boulder is going to stir up some enemies. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but if you start to do what God wants you to do, you'll all of a sudden have enemies that you never knew that you had. Uh, it says that when uh, San, uh, Sambalot, as he came back in, there was pushback. Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite... Uh, and, uh, and servant uh, heard about this, and they were displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So if you're for Israel, you'll have some enemies, just by, by definition. And if you seek to do and support the things and the people of God, there are going to be some enemies that arise. Um, and these are the same guys that had tried to prevent the rebuilding of the temple, And now they're going to try to hinder the rebuilding of the walls. We want to know who they are because in the next couple of chapters, they get very involved in this story. So uh, we want to know who were these guys, Sambalot, Tobiah, and another called Geshem who is is, uh, brought up there. So let me just bring that out before we go into our scripture in chapter 3. Sambalot, the Horonite, uh, was the chief opponent of Nehemiah. He was actually governor of the area to the north of Jerusalem, Samaria, we call it. So he's the closest sort of enemy, the one most threatened uh, by the presence of, of this rebuilding project. Uh, his name is a Persian name, and, it, and his name means, interestingly, sin has given life. <laughs> but we don't want to misunderstand that because it's not sin like we think about it in English. Um, it, but actually, that was the name of the moon god, who later is called Allah. And so we kind of get a, a, a connection even to modern times. The religion of Islam is not going to come until a thousand more years later uh, in the 6th century AD. But Allah, the moon god, is the central deity of Islam. A lot of times people assume that, uh, that Allah is the same as Yahweh. They're not the same. And we just need to know that, that in history, they're not at all the same. And this guy, he functioned as governor over Samaria. Tobiah the Ammonite was governor of the Transjordan. That would be Jordan today. Uh, And uh, Tobiah means Yahweh is good. That sounds good, doesn't it? And he may have even been, um, it's a a historical sort of connection, um, but the... uh, as an Ammonite, we know that he was one of the his, part of the historical enemies of the Hebrews. 
But he may have converted to Judaism, uh, and that's why he had that name. We don't really know. Uh, But he was governor of uh, Ammon, or the Transjordan, under the Persians. And the third is Geshem the Arab. And I think it's so interesting. It just made me immediately think of uh, the Ray Stevens song, Ahab the Arab. I know some of you remember that, and I'm glad. Uh, He was the sheik of the burning sand. He had emeralds and rubies just dripping off of him and a ring on every finger of his hands. So I think of him that way just to help me remember a little bit. His name means bulky or stout. And he may have been the muscle. I mean, this may have been a nickname, uh, Geshem, uh, that, that meant that he was sort of an enforcer or a bone breaker of sorts. But he led a powerful North Arabian alliance of tribes in the south. So all of a sudden we realize Jerusalem is surrounded. On the north there's an enemy, on the east there's an enemy, and in the south and also on the west is this uh, uh, Geshem the Arab uh, leading these, these tribes. And that really is the way Jerusalem seems to be Uh, always is surrounded by enemies. I mean, to this day, it's just such a unique democracy where it sits because there are enemies all around uh, all the time. So these guys uh, had a threat um, from every direction, and they begin to jeer. They begin to uh, be very much against what what is going on. And we see an answer that comes from Nehemiah in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So he makes a very bold pushback, Nehemiah does. And and I, I, I was fascinated by it. It's one of my favorite verses in this whole section of scripture, because he so boldly uh, makes that, that statement. I looked up the word portion because we sometimes will sing songs that talk about our portion. And the Hebrew word is kalek, and it means inheritance or allotment. You have no inheritance here. You have no allotment here or right or claim in Jerusalem. And that word can also mean smooth talk or flattery. So essentially, Nehemiah is also saying no smooth talk, no flattery, you have no claim here, so you need to be on your way as he, as he pushes back against them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only one with rights and claims and authority. We were just singing about authority. And, and uh, our God of, of Abraham is the only one who has rights there. Now, you might say, well, why is that important to bring out? You may not be aware, but we were just there, and, and we heard about it there. Um, the organization called UNESCO, it's the United Nations cultural arm, has repeatedly stated that Israel has no right to Jerusalem, that they have no historical uh, routing there. Uh, they, They consistently claim that only Islam has rights to the Temple Mount, that they have their shrines there, and they're the ones who have rights and authority and inheritance there, but not the people, the historic people of Israel. In fact, they claim that there was never a temple there, and they tried to destroy, in fact, they dug out from underneath the Temple Mount and threw away all the things that would have proven the existence of the temple. Isn't that amazing? Except 
that all of that was recovered and we were part of an archaeological dig sifting through that very uh, material and we found like nine artifacts uh, and you know, our group did and it's just one of the things we had never done before so there is definite historical proof of uh, and evidence of of uh, the Jewish people in Israel but also in uh, the Temple Mount and in Jerusalem you see, one of the things we need to realize is that the enemy loves to claim possession over what is not his. Yeah, it's one of the things that he does. And, uh, and this is such a powerful statement. Um, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will rise and build. Why don't we read that out loud together? I love this, this verse. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim to in Jerusalem. And that's what we need, to, we need to declare that. And not just in Jerusalem, but in our lives and in the lives, in our families, in the people that are around us. You know, sometimes people ask me about exorcism. What is that? Does that exist? Have you ever experienced that? And I have a few times, not very often. But exorcism is essentially simply giving notice to the enemy uh, that they are now evicted. Uh, when the enemy or some spirit of the enemy has, has invaded and somehow possessed or controlled a person, we simply need to announce, you have no authority or allotment or rights or claim in this person. This person is not yours, and, uh, and you have no rights here over them. And any past claim that you might think that you have is broken by the blood of Jesus. Amen? And any past debt, that you're holding over them has been erased by the payment and the sacrifice of Jesus. So we need to understand that. And that's really what he's saying right there. You have no authority here. And it's really important for us to understand that in our modern day. Um, it made me think of Genesis chapter 12, that uh, God's opinion uh, that he stated to, to uh, Abraham about all this. He made this promise to Abraham uh, as he called him to begin this journey uh, that we call the people of, of the Hebrews, the people of Israel. And he said, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. I will bless you and I, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, it's out of this that we get Jesus. This is where Jesus comes from, and it's out of this promise. And if you bless Israel, there's blessing. If you curse Israel, there's curse. And we want how, how many of you want to be on the cursed side of that? I don't. Yeah. So we need to make sure that we're on the blessing side of that. Nehemiah's first task in chapter 2 was to examine the state of the walls and the gates. Um, and God put it in his heart to do this reconnaissance mission uh, in the night. He didn't tell anybody. Uh, he just went, he waited three days until kind of the excitement died down, and he went out, uh, and, and no one knew what he was doing. He just took a few trusted men with him uh, so he could see firsthand with his own eyes the state of, of the walls, the state of the gates. I, I thought it's a little bit like undercover boss, you know, He's going to go and look and see what's been going on. Uh, and so uh, I just thought of this great wisdom um, in, in this 
Because an official inspection tour would have resulted in visits. They would have said, oh, well, let's show you. We'll show you. We've got some places over here where the walls aren't so bad. And and, uh, we've got some gates that aren't damaged as badly as the others. And that's what happens with an inspection tour. Um, You know, uh, Pastor Ann, uh, when she was growing up, she and her siblings, they had this game that they would play. When the house needed to be cleaned up, they would call the game, the president's coming. And so they would just scurry around and see how quickly they could get ready uh, with that idea. The president's coming. We have to get everything ready. And so that's the way people respond sometimes when there's an inspection tour. You know, recently, President Biden went to the southern border to see how bad it is it. On, you know, we keep talking about the southern border. And uh, pretty much all the reports were that there was a lot of cleanup that happened when he went down there. I mean, that because the president's coming. We know he's coming. It's been announced, and and there was a, a lot, and there was a, you know the very best kind of places, and and, and then still seeing what was going on. Um, he saw the better places, um, and and if if we looked at Nehemiah, it would have been good to take uh, some advice from Nehemiah to make an unannounced visit, to just announce to the to his entourage, we're going this afternoon. We can't do that. Yes, you can, because I'm the president, and I said you're going to do it, (laughs) and could have done that. And people say, well, how do you do that? Well, a lot of presidents have done that. Uh, President Bush made a secret Thanksgiving trip to Iraq, um, and Barack Obama, President Obama, made a secret trip to Afghanistan. We didn't know until it was in the news. Nobody knew. It was was secret. And and, uh, President Trump made two such trips uh, to Iraq and to Afghanistan. So, and those were PR trips. I mean, they were, they were to show goodwill to troops. Okay, an inspection is different. But he made this inspection and he made it without announcement. He made it in the, in the dark of night, in the secrecy of night. And he found that the walls were indeed broken down. What he had heard was really true. The gates had been destroyed by fire. And there was so much debris that he could not pass through on horseback. He couldn't even get through some of the areas to look and to see. That's really, really bad. And none of the officials or the priests or the nobles were aware of this inspection. The thing that he discovered was really the scope of the task. And that's what we're getting into in this part of Nehemiah. At the end of chapter 2, it talks about it. And the question was, you know, that he brought to them... Um, Do you see the trouble we are in? Can you see that? Jerusalem lies in ruins. The gates have been burned. And and it's time to rebuild the walls and the gates. So he calls them together uh, as a leader. There's an inspiration that he brings to them. So that we may no longer suffer derision. We're the laughing stock. We can't even call this a city because the walls are, are not secure. There's no security here. And that's when he makes this bold declaration. The hand of God has been upon me. Now, if anybody tells you that, you need to kind of listen carefully. I mean, is that just their delusion? But clearly the hand of God was on Nehemiah. And he knew it. He said, the hand of God has, has been upon me. The king has given his support. And that was obvious. He brought the timber and he brought all the supplies. And he, he brought a military support along. And so he makes this call. Let us rise up and build. And it says they strengthened their hands.
for the good work. I love that phrase, and that's why I, I named the message today in that way. Strengthening our hands. They got ready. How do you get ready to engage in a project? The adversaries were jeering, and, and Nehemiah was responding. Uh, he said, you know, uh, he pushed back to them. The enemy loves to jeer, <laughs> and the enemy loves to claim possession over what's not his. And he says, you have no portion, no right, no claim. So finally, we get to the plan. Chapter 3 lays out the plan of how this is going to be accomplished. And uh, it's, it's an amazing plan. It's enormous, uh, the the complexity and, and the vastness of what needed to be done under any condition. And then there was this opposition that we're going to see in the next two chapters. Uh, but he, it called for a kind of unusual organizational effort, and that's what we're going to look at today. It's 32 verses uh, in this chapter of the Bible. I'm just going to read 15 because we'll really get the idea in 15 verses. Um, and there's a lot of names that are difficult. I'm going to do my very best, and I will speak confidently, <laughs> um, because that's how, that's how you pronounce difficult names. It's on 399 in the edition of the Bible that's out there. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please take one of those Bibles home with you and uh, make sure that you own a Bible. We're Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning uh, verses 1 through 15. There we go. Uh, so beginning in verse 1. Then Eliashib... The high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakkoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berashiah, son of Melchizedek, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tikoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Pasia, and Meshulam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yashana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them... Repaired Melatia, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meranathite, the men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rapaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneah, 
repaired. Malkiah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahathmoab, repaired another section of the towers of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkiah, the son of Rashab, ruler of the district of Bekha-Sherem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Kohoez, ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Let's stand and let's give thanks to God. Father God, I thank you that you helped me say all those names. <laughs> and I thank you for your word and the detail that you have recorded through the pen of, of Nehemiah uh, and, and that you've breathed out through the heart of Nehemiah to remember the people who did the work and the way it was organized. God, Teach us out of this text the things that we need to know and apply. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We were there just last week, uh, and we were walking through the excavations, new excavations of the city of David, and it mentions the pool of Shelah, and that's the pool of Siloam. And Jesus had a healing in which he sent the man to wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. It's been in the news recently. We walk down those stairs down from the city of David. The big question uh, in this part of the scripture is, how do you strengthen your hands for a task such as this? How do you strengthen your hands? I mean, they've been working at this for like 85 years, 89 years. And how do you strengthen your hands now to, to do such a huge work? And so we see this organizational plan uh, that was very carefully designed. We have the names and the families and the leaders, and I think it's with great purpose that they're all recorded here. And also, we can kind of see um, a motivational strategy because he organizes around three key factors. Uh, you know, we often say it's all about location, location, location. But it was more than that. It was location, relation, and vocation. There's a map of the gates and the walls uh, that, that we are looking at, that we are considering. Um, the city of David, it's now being excavated, uh, and it, was, it's, it is now outside of the current city walls, the old uh, city walls of Jerusalem. In the next picture, I think we'll see that. There we go. And you can kind of see where that falls. It's outside of... The city walls are really right there at the, at the Temple Mount. But those walls are only 500 years old. That sounds funny, doesn't it? <laughs> because uh, there's not much around here that's 500 years old. 
St. Augustine is close. But the plan uh, began first with assignments made by location. And it was so very important uh, to think about that. The plan was to ensure coverage of every inch, every cubit of the wall. And so we have these phrases. uh, You heard it in those team verses. Um, But in the 32 verses of this chapter, uh, we hear 28 different times phrases like next to him next to them, next to that, the next section, beside him, beyond them. So there's this connection. Every The links are there all the way around in the building of this wall. The point of that is that a wall is only as strong as its weakest point. I mean, we say that a lot, but it was so critical. This wall, you could not have a weakness You could not have one spot because if one group failed and they just made a sort of weak area, that would be penetrated, that would be a loss. Then the whole thing is just futile. And so the plan was to cover every inch, every part of it, and make sure that everything was repaired and made strong. And to hear about those gates being built and the guard, the bars and the pieces put together is just amazing. Some of the assigned locations were obviously better than others. Uh, As we were reading along there, I don't know what you think, but it seems like the fountain gate was a more pleasant place to work than the one called the dung gate. Um, Because the dung gate is exactly what it says, um, and there is a dung gate today, uh, and it leads out to the area that at that time was the garbage dump. It's where everything was dumped. It was in the Valley of Hinnom, and it was, it was called Gehenna. Now, that may sound familiar because Jesus refers to hell as Gehenna. There was burning, horrible, rotting mess in that valley to the south, and that was, uh, that was what uh, the Valley of Hinnom was all about. It also was worse than that because Gehenna was where, in more ancient times, the worshipers of Baal and Moloch would sacrifice their firstborn babies. It was just the common thing. It's part of what was so uh, greatly uh, destructive uh, before the coming of the people of God was that the sacrifice went on. They would sacrifice the firstborn baby to guarantee fertility and prosperity in the future. I mean, it's just sort of hideous to think about. But we should also reflect on that and realize that in our own culture, there are those who celebrate uh, the, the right and the practice of sacrificing many times a firstborn child in order to guarantee prosperity in the future. We need to realize that's also a part of our culture as well. The second part of the design was that assignments were also made by relation, family relation. And many of the families were already connected uh, to different places along the wall. Historically, the families had been there before, and they probably had already settled there. But people came in from all around to make these repairs and to do this work. Um, if, if their home was part of the wall, then they were going to build it strong. Because you build your house strong, and then that's part of the structure that protects the whole community. Um, It was also probably good because time wouldn't be wasted traveling somewhere else. We're going to build right here where our home is. 
But most important is that in case of attack, they would not be tempted to leave their posts. They would stay and they would protect their families, but also protect the city. So the whole task would become this family effort. And we read that in there. It's just sort of amazing. Uh, They would use their talents to build and to strengthen the wall right where they were. I I love that in in verse 12, it says that next to him, uh, Shalom, uh, the son of Halahesh, the ruler of the half district, he repaired he and his daughters. Apparently, he didn't have any sons. They don't mention any sons. It reminds me of Tevye. They say, you have a daughter. I have five daughters. (laughs) And so uh, this, uh, this man, Shalom, uh, he, I, I just have this image of him working with his daughters and, and just saying, this is for us. This is for our family. And so we're digging in. We're doing our part. The third part of the assignments were made by vocation. And so people, you know, they had their specific skill sets. They had their things that they were good at. Uh, we do too. Uh, We're always motivated by what we do well. If I can do something that I'm good at, I'm going to be more invested in that. I mean, that's the way it is in church. That's the way it is in everything that we do in the kingdom. If If we do the things that we're good at, we're going to be well invested in that. So some were good at, at cutting stone and some were good at, at uh, mixing mortar or whatever they were using. Uh, others were good with bolts and bars and doors and putting up uh, the gates. And, and, and the importance of that is that it gives meaning to our work. If I contribute with something that I have interest in, I'm going to feel good. And that's what we do so many times in church is we find this place where uh, I enjoy, I feel I'm gifted, I feel I'm called, I have skill sets to do this area of ministry, to work in this manner. It could be in worship and praise, it could be in working uh, with children or teenagers, it could be working in the in our food pantry, uh, so many different ways. There are men that gather uh, every day of the week and they come and they put their hands to the uh, maintenance of these buildings and taking care and repairing things. And so, we, and we get meaning from that. So very, very interesting that this is the, the motivational uh, strategy that Nehemiah was putting in place. The priest and and his fellow priests, they were assigned to rebuild the sheep gate. They probably weren't construction guys, but the sheep gate was important to them because that was the sacrificial process there near the temple on the northeast side of of the temple. And so in, in other ways, there's a fish gate. So fishermen here, I know we have some fishermen. There's a fish gate too. So uh, there were these interests and uh, and vocational interests. Um, it included goldsmiths and perfume makers, and they were making sure that the area that they would be using was rebuilt, Levites and merchants. And so it says they strengthened their hands for the good work. And it occurred to me as I was studying this that our hands are strengthened in the same way. I've already really been talking about it. Uh, when we know that our efforts count, that my part of the wall makes a difference uh, to my community, that my part, my contribution uh, provides a strength that will benefit other families and other members of my church family. And that makes a difference. And so we, we are strengthened in that. And, and when we know that our family contribution is critical, 
uh, to the community and to the security. Uh, That's so very important to us. We find meaning in God's unique contribution through us. You know, we talk a lot of times about the gifts of the Spirit. We have talents, we have resources, we have finances, we have time, we have energy. As we bring those into ministry, it is such a powerful thing in our hands. And the hands of the body of Christ are strengthened in that. So the the question that I would bring uh, for this weekend we're going to really get into it in the next couple of, um, of weeks, the next couple of chapters in Nehemiah. But our question is, um, are you or am I fortifying the walls of the body of Christ? What, am I, what is my contribution to make sure that, that the body of Christ is strong? Uh, and a lot of times people say, well, I'm fortifying my walls. I mean, there's this drawback that came with pandemic. Whereas, I mean, I know people that just said, I'm going to be concerned about me. I'm going to be concerned about my family. And I understand that, and that's important. But the strength of your family is related to the other families in the body of Christ. And so we need to make sure that we know that connection and we take up our assignment next to one another, next to the last one in, in the body and in the strengthening of the walls. You know, we're called to share and declare the truth of the gospel. But also, we're called to protect the truth of the gospel. And sometimes, you know, that balance is difficult because we don't want to be all about rules and we don't want to be all about separation. But we also want to make sure that we don't water things down. The gospel is the gospel. People will say, I don't like that part of the Bible. I say, well, it's not our prerogative. I can't change that. God said that. I, I, that, that particular demand of the gospel, I don't like that. Well, what we need to do is get comfortable with being saved by God, by his grace, what he's provided for us, and, and not trying to, to make things easy or easier. And so we want to make sure we get, get that. We're called to protect those who are entrusted to us, the children and the teenagers. So we try to be very, very careful about who teaches and, and what is being taught. And we need to, to look at those things in our location as individuals and in our family relation and with our talents and our vocation. So as the body of Christ, I mean, it's another take on this is, Am I strengthening the hands of Jesus in our community? You know, we often say that you are the only Jesus some people will meet. You are the only voice of Christ that some will hear. As we go out these doors, the only hands that Jesus has in this community are at the end of your arms. (laughs) And so am I strengthening the reach of Jesus, the body of Christ, uh, in my community And in my world, am I strengthening the the weakest parts of outreach to the world? I mean, in my giving, in my support, in my energy? Am I working to build my family as a strong part of the spiritual structure of the church? Am I making a contribution of, of my skills and my talent, my gifts that God has given through me? Not to me, but through me. God has gifted each and every one of us with resources and time and energy and gifts of the Spirit. And so as we are saved by grace, we walk in that. 
And that's the call of Nehemiah. It's amazing to see how God was at work. Let's pray. It may be that as you've been listening, you've realized that you don't know about this grace thing or this gospel thing. And you realize that you need to begin the journey and you do that with a simple prayer to say, God, I get it. I need you. And I want, I want this Jesus. I want this grace. Forgive me of my sin. Bring me into your body of Christ. Make me into the new creation and make me part of your plan. Uh, everything that you are doing, I give thanks for that. God, I pray that as we are still in the beginnings of a new year, that you will call us as families, as individuals, and as church to strengthen our hands for the good work you have for us in Jesus. God, I pray that you will show us the way that you want to strengthen our hands for that good work. In Jesus' name, amen.